G'day, it's time to talk about Australia's favourite obsession, property. My name's Jeremy Cowan and this is my podcast where I get to talk about one of my favourite topics and one that Australia is and always has been obsessed with. See, everybody loves property. Everyone has a connection to property as a homeowner, a landlord, even as a tenant and hence our obsession with it. In fact, there's not many people listening that wouldn't have been a tenant at one time or another. For times when you've moved out into a share house or perhaps you've lived with a partner while you're saving to buy a property. Well, it's possibly that you've had to move into state or overseas. There's plenty of reasons that we rent and when we do, we deal with a property manager. They are the conduit between the tenant and the landlord. Stuck in the middle of rent increases and maintenance issues. Part social worker, part paralegal. But what does a property manager provide and how can they protect you as a landlord? And that's what we're going to chat about today. So I'd like to introduce you to someone stuck right in the thick of it, battling and managing renters and landlords alike, property manager and part-time YouTube sensation, Braden Kidd from Ashby Partners. Welcome to Property, Australia's Favourite Obsession. Uh, look, it's an absolute pleasure to be on here. Thank you for having me. Braden, I'm really looking forward to this one. As you said, there's a lot to, uh, to cover. And what I want to start with is that um, investing to me, it's all about defining and controlling risks that as investors, we face a lot of risks. And there's some risks that we can control um, and there's some that we can't. Things like the movement of interest rates and the expansion and contraction of the, pro- of the, uh, the economy and the like. But there's many that we can control and there's many that we can define. And so I'd like to put it to you that right off the bat, as a property manager, that the role that you have and the, the value that you add is the ability and the responsibility of recognising, quantifying and managing the most manageable of risks that investors can face. Oh, 100%. Look, everything from, from good tenant selection and looking to the security of the tenants and their positions, be it financial and, and home life, uh, all the way through to preventative maintenance and, and liability issues that we need to pick up on as well. So the, the entire job is just surrounds mitigating that risk to a landlord. Property is a really emotional thing for us as humans. Um, you know, as, as a tenant, they see it as their home, their nest, their you know their family household, and yet as landlords, it's all about the ownership that you know we've got the rights and the privilege that um, uh, that that ownership gives us. So, I want to ask the question: Who's more emotional to deal with? Is it the tenants who see the property as their home, or is it the landlord who has the power of ownership within the property? Look, I would say that the emotion is split 50-50 between the both. So we as property managers see the best and the worst of people. So during very high stress situations, you know, if a tenant loses their job or something along those lines and and can't afford to, to meet the, the rental payments all the way through to landlords losing their jobs of the like, uh, especially probably more prevalent in, in this current uh, economic climate. Um, you know, we, we've had to kind of deal and and guide through the waters a lot of these issues so uh, emotions can run high so obviously the landlord's got a massive financial interest in in this this one item uh, and, and we've got the tenants that you're right they've got their home there that, that's where they live that's where they feel safe and secure so if there's any upset to any one of those situations we're going to see the, the best and the worst of people That'd be pretty hard to manage sometimes, wouldn't it? The, um, as you said, the the stress. You know, you've got you know very emotive situations. I imagine that'd be quite difficult. Yeah, oh, yeah. And look, it's it's not a job for everybody. Um, the, the first thing that I tell all younger property managers getting into the industry is really not to take things personally. Um, you're there as the mediator, as the middleman. 
thankfully, most things in, in all states are, are pretty clearly legislated. So it's just a matter of reading and interpreting what the laws and the legislation says and, and passing that on. Obviously, you want to do it with dignity and with tact. Um, but uh, so sometimes it's well received, sometimes it's not. And that is a hard one, as you said, that it is something that um, the states do, do have jurisdiction over, isn't it? That there isn't one overriding um, legislative piece that, that protects... No, look, not, not quite. So there, there are a variation of the same set of rules, really. Um, the primary things that change, uh, you know, like the minute details, such as like notice periods of what you can give uh, a tenant for, for notice without grounds, for example, for an eviction, uh, be it... Um, you know, because they've done something or you just need to take possession of the property back. And the biggest one you'd see would be somewhere like where you are in South Australia. Um, it'd be 28 days written notice before the end of the fixed-term tenancy, whereas in the ACT, which where I'm from, it's 26 weeks written notice, um, so a full six months. So just, just little little details like that which make a big difference, which is why it's so important that you're over uh, the individual states and territories legislation. So we'll get on to evictions a little bit later, but... What about, can you tell us what distinguishes the best and most profitable landlords? What is it that they do differently to others? Um, I find, and again, we see where, where I am in the ACT, a massive cross-section. So we've obviously got a higher level of income than most states, and most of the landlords here uh, benefit from a transient population, which keeps the, the flow of tenants coming through, uh, the demand quite active. Um, there's not like a great deal of building going on for, for a lot of reasons. Um, where the landlords that we represent do quite well, they're, they're all very engaged with their property. Um, so, you know, from, from doing preventative maintenance items, from doing little touch-ups, they're constantly appealing to, I guess, a higher-grade tenant, mm-hmm. um, tenants that stay a little bit longer. So, again, it's hard in a transient population where you're changing over every 12 months because that's just what the contracts are. You, you save money when you get a long-term tenant in there. Um, so we, we find landlords that are properly engaged with their property would generally fare a lot better. So is that the case for those investors that make the most money? Are those that are the most engaged landlords? Yeah, you'd say you spend a little bit more now and you reap the rewards later on. So be it through uh, like vacancy periods, you've got to calculate into this as well as rental return on the actual property itself. Um, there's a lot of variables that you, you take into consideration when you look at the overall net position at the end of each year. So the landlords that do better financially are the landlords that, uh, you know, have an interest in keeping the tenants uh, in keeping the properties kind of up to a good scratch. Um, you know, they, they'll usually uh, yield more in, in, I guess, annual asking price uh, as well as uh, lower vacancy periods. And we'll get on in a little bit to, you know, how you determined um, uh, the rent for a property. But the, I mean, at the end of the day, it's the capital growth that makes the money, isn't it? Not the income. hundred percent. And yeah, so you're look, sort I mean, of... If you, yeah, so you're playing with kind of a lot of money. And that's why a lot of people go down that route is because a lot of the money's borrowed as well. Um, so when you're looking at your capital growth on like a $500,000 property, um, that, that, that's really where you're going to see the increases. Um, the rental yield's good, like it pays a lot of your outgoings in a lot of places, like Canberra, I think that average is about 5%, but other states you see, like Sydney, anywhere between 1% and 1.5%, I believe you're doing pretty well. Yeah. Uh, and, and then other states, I think you kind of cap an average out around about 4%. So how is it that you would go about determining an appropriate level of rent for a property? Uh, there's a few things to take into consideration. Um, the, the most Agents that don't go into great detail will just look at what's coming on and off market and what they're, what they're renting for. 
Um, I tend to go like a layer deeper when we look at the de- most likely demographic who's going to rent the property. We look at their their income, their levels, what their expenditure per rent is, uh, and then you can paint a pretty clear picture. And then you look at the property itself. Uh, you know, what are the strong points? What are the weak points? Uh, what are those little things that you've got to try to get around? Um, when you take all those factors into consideration, plus the you know the, the results coming on and off market, uh, you can usually paint a pretty clear picture of what it should rent for. Uh, but in there as well, like, you, you know, sometimes you overcook it uh, and, you know, pretty much in the first day that if you've overcooked it because you don't get a call, you don't get an email inquiry or anything like that. Yep. Uh, and it's just a matter of setting the expectations pretty clearly. So with that, is it important to, you know, when you've got a decent tenant in there um, who is settled, is it important to ask continually for rental increases? Uh, definitely. Um, so I'll use, again, it varies from state to state, but a few states have just recently introduced uh, like legislation where you can't really increase the rent at a greater rate than CPI, mm-hmm. um, which kind of stunts your, your overall growth. If you're not getting those, you, you basically get left behind. Um, so I see a lot of landlords that the tenant's good. I'm going to keep the rent the same. It doesn't do you any favours because each year, council rates, land taxes, all those things are constantly going up. If you're not really getting those increases with your rent either, you're getting left behind in that aspect. Um, but uh, again, using Canberra as the example, what we've seen year on year uh, increase around about uh, 6 to 8% in asking rents uh, for the last three or four years. Um, and if, if you're not increasing at the rate of CPI, which is what you're allowed to increase here, you're just creating a much, much bigger gap for yourself. And you're losing out on potentially thousands and thousands of dollars uh, by not doing that. And look, tenants, uh, depending on their situation at home, are quite amenable. If you're a proactive landlord, again, and you're looking after the place and you're looking after them from that respect, um, most people don't really mind spending an extra few bucks a week. Uh, And, you know, when you take into consideration the cost of a move on average is, what, five or $6,000 by the time you start to finish, um, it it makes more sense paying an extra few hundred dollars a year than than like a few thousand dollars having to uproot and move. So is it important then to use, uh, you know, a a local um, agent or can technology solve a lot of that, um, you know, can can it solve a lot of problems for having a rental agent interstate? Yeah, look, te- technology has made our jobs so much easier where, like, geography does play an important role. Um, you know, you've got to be in drivable distance to the property where you can, I guess, effectively and efficiently service the needs, um, you know, through routine inspections. You, you need to be face-to-face for those. You, you can't really just rely on video calls. You need to get a feel for, for what the maintenance issues actually are, for how the tenants are looking after it. Like, I mean, video only takes you so far. Mm. Uh, but from leasing as well, like, you, you want the agent to be able to physically get there to show people through at the drop of a hat, particularly in a stale market. Um, so we, we generally work off the principle that if they're within a 30-minute drive, they're a hot contender to, to at least interview to manage the property. Uh, anything thereafter, you just got to question how efficiently they're actually going to represent your interests. What about from a, um, a landlord's point of view, you know, uh, managing properties interstate? If I've got a, you know, living in one state and investing in another? Yeah, I think it's important to have somebody on the ground that's at least going to keep like a, a face-to-face eye on the property, um, like obviously they, they can only go through the legislated timeframes for, for routine inspections and so forth, but it's important to have that engagement with the property itself um, and, and also dealing with things in case of emergency or, or anything along those lines. So like having an agency in Sydney look after a place in Brisbane, I, I don't see how they do that efficiently. Mm. Uh, you can do like a lot of the transaction, um, you know, be it rent receding, you, you can do video routines, you can do, you know, like a uh, I think there's some people out there that subcontract the leasing efforts uh, to a local agency but still manage interstate. 
Uh, and there's agencies out there, like I believe they do it all right, but um, there's a lot of gaps that kind of uh, appear when, when they're trying to do that. It seems to me, I mean, property at the end of the day is a, is a tangible um, that, as you said, it's important to have someone on the ground to be able to, you know, look, touch, smell, feel, um, you know, to represent as a letting agent. As a landlord, I can understand uh, interstate, um, but as you said, you need to make sure that you engage with a really good letting agent who is going to, um, you know, represent you well on the ground. Yeah, well, exactly right. And like, I mean, the local agents as well, uh, you know, they have a fairer idea of what's happening in the marketplace. So when it does come time to particularly the part of the transaction where you're, when you're releasing to find new tenants, it's important that you have somebody that actually knows what's going on. Uh, because every single market, even between suburbs and capital cities, like a complete, completely different. Mm. So how would you describe the value that you provide as a, uh, as a letting agent? Um, when we started this business about three years ago, We've always uh, wanted to be a big agency with a boutique feel. Um, and, I mean, exponential growth, we're doing quite well in the three years, all organic. And that's built off the back of um, – I know this is going to sound silly, but answering our phones. So built off the back of communication. And that's the number one promise that I make to every single new client when they sign up. And it's the number one gripe people have with other agencies Australia-wide. It's a very common theme mm. is they just don't get any communication from their property manager. So you leave 10, 10 messages to get one phone call back, basically, is is the feedback that you often hear. It staggers me also that that's exactly the same in sales, real estate salespersons. Uh, I scratch my head with that, that uh, how long and how many of them just ignore, you know, exactly. phone calls and emails. Exactly. Like, I mean, sales is like, a, I mean, it's higher stakes when you think of the money that's involved with that. And, and you know, property management, what the average property manager might make, 15, 1600 bucks a year from, from your business. Um, but you expect the world of them as well. Um, so I, I don't understand how that works for the sales agents. And I can understand, like, there's a lot of property management principles too uh, out there that have that sales mentality and, and the property management just falls by the wayside. Um, but they don't put enough, I guess, money and resources into uh, staff training, staff selection, uh, technology as well to really cope with the with the workload. So it's always just an afterthought. I like the fact that you know you are um, leasing specialists. Yeah. Um, you don't have a sales arm. What's the you know what's the symbiotic relationship between sales and leasing? Um, How do they get along? You usually look at. Um, I, I've worked in in bigger agencies as well where, you know, they're very well established and very successful sales arm as well as the property management arm. And they are cohesive. They do work hand in hand. Um, You usually find it is just more or less from like a a funnel into the business. Um, So you sell a property to an investor, you take on that management. So it makes perfect sense from a business sense um, to to have the sales division to constantly be feeding in new properties organically into the rent roll. Um, but mm. also from the rent roll, like if, if it's about 5% of the average rent roll decides to sell each year, um, then that's big bucks for the sales agency as well. Yeah. Going back to uh, just the functions of the letting agent, what, what, what can a landlord expect from a property manager when they take on um, the management of their property? What, what do you actually do? Well, the general expectations are, and there is a long list of what is expected of a property manager, but you expect them to be able to read market trends, how to price a property, how to run a marketing campaign, how to run a trust account, um, how to 
uh, understand fundamentally how a property is put together. So, you know, are they builders? No, but uh, do they have to understand where maintenance items come from? Uh, how to troubleshoot those maintenance items with the tenant as well? So, you know, you know, is it something that can be fixed on the spot or is it something you need a specialist trade for or just like a general handyman? Uh, how to price those things? Uh, how to interpret the legislation? How to cl- offer clear advice? Um, how to collect debt efficiently is a big one, especially at the moment. Mm. Uh, how to read an insurance policy and make claims where required, um, how to differentiate between wear and tear and damage and then manage both parties' expectations surrounding this, and that's probably the biggest gripe come vacate of a tenant. Yeah. Um, the responsibility split between strata and property management if it's in a strata complex, uh, how to mediate issues in both a formal and informal setting, um, how the civil tribunal process works, how to be firm with both of the tenants and the landlords if they're being unreasonable, and it does happen on both sides of the transaction there, yep. um, particularly uh, if they're asking you to operate outside of the, the legislation. Uh, which happens more often than you'd think, and, and how to ha- handle large volumes of uh, wine, I like to say, so both the client variety and the grape variety. Yep. Uh, so people <laughs> love calling up to vent. People love to be heard. Yes. Uh, and and just how to, to really take that on without taking it on board, if that makes sense. So that's, in essence, what a property manager is expected to do. And, and I mean, what we do efficiently as well, um, but it's just understanding clearly where the responsibilities of both parties lie. And what do you um, do in your spare time then? Oh, mate, exactly. It's, it's, a it's a pretty yeah, big list. It's a pretty big list, isn't it? Exactly right. And look at the average property manager. It varies from agency to agency and, and, you know, how it's set up. Like there's some task-based operations where, you know, you have a person for maintenance, uh, you have a person for, for landlord communication, person for tenant communication. The most common setup is like a portfolio where uh, you have a property manager look after, you know, a certain set amount of clients. You, you'd expect them to look after an average of about 130 to 150 properties. Mm-hmm. So it's 150 times exactly that list um, that your average property manager's looking after. So it really requires a good operator and a good communicator. And a damn good team around you by the sounds of it. Definitely, definitely. It sounds like a lot of the job is really coordinating and negotiating, isn't it? That's 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 all it is. That's all it is. But um, there has to be really firm knowledge of the laws and legislations for that particular area. So how does property management go wrong? You know, how, um, how does it happen and why? A lot of the time it comes down to communication and that could be you know, from, from a thousand different perspectives. So usually when it goes wrong, it's because something's not being communicated. So there could be an inexperienced property manager that doesn't know how to manage expectations and they might set one party's expectations way too high and they're completely under deliver, um, you know, by misrepresenting the legislation or, you know, just making promises they know they can't keep to save a difficult conversation. Um, that's probably the most common thing that I see happen. Uh, other times it's just a complete, you know, just just ignore the issue and hope it goes away yeah. uh, because you have got so much on. Uh, and, and, you know, if you can't effectively manage your time, things are going to slip through the cracks. And look, not, not everyone's perfect, but it depends, I guess, how big of a mistake that is and, and how frequently it happens as to, to whether or not you have any goodwill banked up to fix the issue. But that's really when you see property management go wrong from uh, from like a property manager's perspective. It's just inaction. What about from a landlord's um, uh, point of view? I mean, uh, taking away the um, communication issue, what's one of the hidden pitfalls that landlords, um, you know, typically trip over and stops them from uh, from succeeding? Not budgeting and allowing for maintenance and always being caught off guard. So not proactively taking a look uh, at property investment. 
um, they're, they're probably the big one. And like, I mean, lack of insurance cover is a big one as well, uh, where you think you're covered because, you know, let's just say you're with Common Sure if they still exist, um, and you've got a landlord component with them because they signed you up when you did your home and contents insurance, uh, only to find out it doesn't cover anything. Um, yeah. That happens very frequently. So getting a specialist insurance cover is very important. Uh, obviously, you never want to use it, but that's just like all insurance. You never want to use it, but uh, you're crazy if you don't have it. Uh, and then tenant selection as well uh, would, would be another major pitfall that really stunts your growth in property investment. So if you chuck anyone in there just because, you know, you have had a higher rate of vacancy than you used to, I think that's crazy. Um, you, you really need to take a good look at the pros and the cons of each tenant. And most people are fantastic. Like at any given time, I don't think we have an issue with more than 1% of our rent roll. Um, so not 99% of people are fantastic, but it's that 1% that can really, really financially ruin you. Well, it's not only that. I mean, at the end of the day, it's the reliability of tenants that really creates the value for landlords, isn't it? So, well, that's exactly right. Trusting of- the fact that they're going to pay the rent—that that's a big one. So you know you can rely on your cash flows if you're servicing debt, um, but but also maintaining the integrity of the property as well on a day-to-day basis. So let's start with that actually. So the quality of tenant is absolutely paramount. How do you yep. go about determining who is the best tenant? Um, we've got to be very careful with what we say and what we do um, just due to anti-discrimination laws. Um, that, that's first and foremost. So you take like a very blank look at absolutely everybody. Everyone's on the complete equal playing field. Um, but you look at the strengths and weaknesses uh, in each application. First and foremost, is the person appropriate for the property? Are you going to move a family of six into a two-bedroom apartment or is that going to create extra wear and tear in the property? That's that's number one question. Are they appropriate? Uh, the second one surrounding finances and look, there, there's some less well-off people that turn out to be the best tenants you can ever ask for, mm-hmm. yes. and that, that's completely okay. And I respect that. And we, you know, we, we have landlords here that will sometimes side with those from a social reason, and yes. you know, they, they've just turned out to be ten out of ten and and have been nothing but a pleasure. Uh, but you've got to look at the financial stability of each tenant. Um, you know, are they living paycheck to paycheck? Uh, do they have secure jobs? Are they on casual, permanent, part-time contract? When's that contract expiring? How many incomes will be servicing the rental amounts? So what happens if one person loses their job? Do you have any other funds to rely on? Um, and then you kind of, once you've, once you've got that uh, pretty much mapped out, then you go deeper into the reference checking. Um, so confirming the employment, corroborating all the information that provided you, um, going through the, the rental references. If they haven't rented before, then, then kind of finding out other ways to, to prove that they're going to be sound and, and reasonable with how they treat the property. So Sometimes just going, you, sorry, just yep. to butt in there, just just for a moment. Just, so how how do you how do you validate an, an applicant's income? Let's start with that one first. Uh, so what you usually find, but there, there's it's a fine line before, between uh, like an invasion of privacy, I guess, and getting the information that you require that, to make. That's exactly a where I'm coming assessment. from here, actually. That's exactly. Yeah. Where I'm coming from so here. the most difficult one I find to verify is self-employed people, and I'm a self-employed person myself, and I've gone through the same checks for both sales and purchasing a place and, and renting yep. a place. Yeah. And so some banks can be very ruthless. Um, some agents can be very ruthless with what, what they ask, and sometimes it leaves a bit of a bitter taste in your mouth. Um, so if you're with a self-employed person, I usually just like to see deposit slips uh, for the last six months on their bank statement. I don't really need to see the outgoings. I'm not interested in that. Yep. I don't need to see their balances. I just want to show that they have a consistent flow of 
income that would satisfy the insurers if we needed to make a claim. Yeah. Um, people in Canberra, it's very tricky because we do like a lot of work with uh, ASD, DFAT. Um, I'm sure there's other people in there like ASIO that can't really get a solid rent, like a, a income reference. Yes. Um, so you, you've got to go off what their pay slips say. Uh, and again, just deposit slips to corroborate that. But um, for those particular ones, and that is an anomaly because it's not really prevalent Australia one, um, but you've just got to take it with a little bit of trust. Uh, but other ones, you, you call up HR, for example, uh, like the main switchboard numbers and ask to speak for that person that's applied for the property. And that's a well true fire way to find out if they actually work there first and foremost, um, rather than just, you know, anyone could give anyone's mobile number and say that, hey, Jeremy's my manager. I'll just give him a call. He'll tell you that yeah, I have a job correct. here and I earn $600,000 a year. Yep. Uh, so you just got to look at like different ways to kind of validate that aren't an invasion of privacy. And that will kind of satisfy you knowing that they do have that source of income coming through. What about character references and, you know, previous um, rental agents and that sort of stuff? You always call the character references. However, I'd be very surprised if someone's going to put down the name and number of someone who's not going to say something good about them. Correct. Uh, however, on that note, it has happened. Oh, really? Um, so, <laughs> yeah, it has. Oh, yeah, look, this fella, he's a bit scruffy and messy. I probably wouldn't put my name to him. Oh, okay. <laughs> like that's, it's, it's only happened a couple of times that it has happened. But you always always just double check and ask a couple around about the way uh, questions. But um, with the rental references, this is a very important one to get right. And look, it comes in a thousand different shapes and sizes. So sometimes you're going to get homeowners uh, that have sold their property and they're moving into a rental for one or two years before they buy again or they needed to sell for other financial or family reasons and that's completely okay usually we just like to see at least like a mortgage statement that's in credit that's not in arrears if it is in arrears just like a brief explanation as to why they haven't been able to service that debt and is that why they're selling yeah um and you just make your judgment based on that uh, and it's always up to the landlord to make that judgment not us it's not our job to to do that it's just our job to to get all the information together um, but uh, the, the other one would be agency references, whether it's through a real estate agency before, and they're fantastic because you have a full trust account printout of all the money they've paid, um, the dates that it was paid, what the dates are to, and that is the best reference that anybody could physically get because trust accounts don't lie, and if you're misappropriating trust funds as an agency, there's fines and jail time involved with that, so you can usually trust what somebody's saying on that piece of paper. Um, unless the agent's really dodgy, which doesn't happen very often. Yeah, I was going to say, they're not going to last uh, then, very long, are they? As you said, there's a there's a no, whole lot exactly of ramifications right. and legal requirements around trust accounts. Well, I was going to say, you need to get them audited every 12 months. Yeah. So if there's any discrepancies, you're not running away with a lot of money. Yeah. Um, but, but the other two, two forms are just moving out of home for the first time, and then that's when the character's really in there, and you need to really trust your property manager with what they thought of them in person. Um, and then the last but not least would be private rentals. And private rentals equate for, in this particular local market, I'm in mean about 35%. So there's right. where an owner looks after their own property and rents directly to tenants or, you know, they're renting out a room to help with the mortgage or even if uh, we, we class private as like a sublease arrangement that's been approved. Um, so you just kind of, again, if someone's been paying rents in cash, I really don't take a look at that because you just can't prove anything. Yep. Um, but that's where bank statements come in handy. And again, without seeing all the transactions, you just, you know, I mean, most net banks, you can just punch in your payments to a specific person. It will come up with a full ledger. Yeah. So you can get like an ad hoc ledger from your bank account. And we like to see that. So from all that information put together, and again, like there's so many layers involved and it's something that you just can't get wrong, um, but you should be able to paint a pretty clear picture of the person that could be a candidate for your property. Going back to the whole idea of, um, you know, how many people can be on the lease and, and you know, a family of six coming into a, you know, applying for a, 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 a say, a two or a three bedroom house, et cetera, where, where does the, 
where does the where where is the line there of of discrimination? Um, that, that's a very good question, and I think it's very hard to say. Um, like that's a very very grey area that I probably wouldn't be willing to put a very firm answer to. However, um, I would be looking at it as. Uh, probably a case of not necessarily discrimination, but just maybe not providing a reason as to why you're saying no. Uh, If if there's a family of six applying for a two-bedroom unit, I know there's rules in local jurisdictions surrounding, you know, for example, kids residing in the one room together. Um, Before, you're not allowed to do that. Don't don't quote me on that, but I know I've read of that many times before. Um, So you can kind of pull that into into question, but I would just be giving a blanket no reason for for declining uh, personally. Um, so, so actually, let's take that line of, of, of discussion there a little bit further, Braden, in that yeah. um, under what conditions, you know, if, if two people apply for a, um, a, a rental, um, yeah. you know, what do you have to say to the person that you're not giving it to? Uh, you don't have to say anything by law. You just go, the landlord, from, from an agency's perspective, we always, because the landlord has chosen not to give a reason. Yes. And pretty much in a conversation, like usually they'll want to know why and uh, you just got to be very firm and not open yourself up to any liability for any reason. But the landlord is just not, we're not giving a reason. Like we're just going to another option. Yeah. It's so as simple the, as that. So bottom line is that the landlord's got ability to choose and yep. um, you as the rental agent. Um, you well, know, it's w- not my choice. Uh, at the end of the day, it's not my choice. Um, the landlord, if they did want to put the family of six in, they're more than welcome to, and the family of six obviously has seen the property and they think it's appropriate for their needs. Um, that's none of my business. But again, coming back to managing risk, um, you know, the landlord has the discretion to approve or decline anybody for their property. Um, it's just surrounding discrimination as to whether or not they give a reason. And I just blanket, even if there's, you know, no negativity in the decision, I always just say, never give a reason. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, if there's more than one person or one entity applying or group of people's applying for a, for a property, then someone's going to miss out by definition, aren't they? Oh, exactly right. So what about pets? Um, now, this is a fun one in Canberra because they've just changed the legislation where uh, landlords aren't allowed to unreasonably refuse permission for a tenant to keep a pet. And I know in Strata, even though a lot of executive committees have tried time and time again over the last you know, many decades to say that there's no pet policies in properties, that's never been the case. And every time it's been pushed um, to, to like a court system, um, it's, it's never been upheld. So pets for me, it's just about managing risk. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of clauses that you can put in uh, to a lease agreement to really safeguard you. And most insurance policies that you take out should cover pet damage. So I think it's all quite low risk. Usually tenants with pets too will stay for longer, decreasing your your rate of vacancy. I always just say, though, the pet has to be appropriate for the property. Um, You know, like you wouldn't have an Alsatian in a one-bedroom unit. I think that's just ridiculous. Uh, But, you know, an Alsatian in a house on, you know, 600 square metres with a yard, I think that's completely reasonable to have. So long as you're covered with the clauses to make sure that the tenants make good on any, any damage caused by the pet. Yeah. During the lease. Yeah. So but to me, it doesn't bother me. And like I've seen it time and time again. So the moment the laws changed here at the end of last year in the ACT, um, we did receive like an influx of applications to keep pets. And the first couple of rounds of routines have happened since then. And we haven't haven't clocked even one issue. Right. So, Braden, I currently am in a leased arrangement, let's say, and I want yep. to come off that lease. What happens? What's the process? Oh, goodness. This one's a difficult one. Uh, it depends on 
again, the state or territory, um, but we'll use it as a general sense. Um, there's a few things that needs to be satisfied. You can't just up and leave. It's completely up to the landlord. The landlord can deny you the ability to leave the lease agreement and you'll need to apply for civil tribunal to get it terminated. Um, so that's first and foremost. The landlord does have rights in this circumstance. Um, the landlord needs to assess the financial ability of the remaining people on that lease to service the rental amount. So that would really be driving their decision as to whether or not to, to take you off the lease. Um, if, you know, you find someone to take it and the landlord's happy with that and everyone's got the financial capacity to meet it, then you just need to sort out the bond arrangement with the co-tenants yes. um, and, and work that out. That has nothing really to do with anyone but those on the lease itself. Um, but uh, just, yeah, leaving a lease agreement by, like, I mean, everyone's got to come to that mutual agreement. Um, you just can't make that decision by yourself to up and leave whenever you want. What about the situation where um, you, as the rental manager, know, say I'm the, again, the, the tenant and I'm saying, okay, my lease is going to end in a month or two months time and I'm not going to renew it but I'm happy to pay out to the end of it and stay to the end of my lease. Yep. Um, so you know the property is going to be coming up for our, um, you know, up for rent. Um, how do you go about uh, gaining access and trying to release that before the lease actually ends? Well, thankfully, it's all, I mean, reasonable access is defined in the legislation for each state and territory, so it's just a matter of having a look at that. Um, in Queensland, for example, we used to advertise four weeks out before the end of the lease, so you'd use your first two weeks to really test your price to see if you're kind of on point and then the other two weeks before vacancy to really narrow down and negotiate a new term. And I think that's a reasonable time frame. So you kind of hit them maybe with two open homes a week or something along those lines and maybe a couple of, you know, by appointment inspections. And that's just something that I've reserved myself to as a tenant in the past and, and present um, that, you know, you've got to allow for that. You're not allowed to hinder an agent's ability or uh, to to relet the property to a new person. And, and that's how you best kind of minimise the vacancy period. Um, there's other states and territories like where I'm at the moment um, that you're not allowed to gain access for the purpose of releasing the property until the last three weeks of the tenancy, which is still more than enough time. So it's easier to re-rent a tenanted property because you are uh, playing with free time, so to speak, because there's yes. still being money paid against it. So you're not up against, you know, vacancy from the get-go. For any agent that waits until the property turns vacant to put it up for rent and re-rent it, um, I just think they're absolutely crazy and borderline negligent as well. Yeah, okay. So you really want to be on the front foot there. And as you Always. said, I mean, you know, the obviously the, the, the whole key to all of this is to, uh, you know, to keep someone in the property, isn't it, paying rent? Yeah, exactly right. Like vacancy costs money um, because you're still servicing all the outgoings. The bills will never stop. Your land tax won't stop. Your rates won't stop. Your mortgage repayments won't stop. Um, so it's important that uh, – and like, I mean, agencies charge fees for every time it's you know comes for renewal as well, and it's something you need to take into consideration. But every day it's vacant is just another day that you're getting away from your goals. So what are my rights and obligations as a tenant? Um, you've got a lot. I mean, both parties have a lot of rights and obligations. So your obligations are to maintain the property to a reasonable standard and to uphold the terms and conditions of the lease, which, I mean, they're pretty pretty black and white. Um, you know, you, your rights and obligations as a landlord is to make sure it's a safe and uh, habitable environment. That's uh, a very important one. Um, and, like, I mean, so, so long as both parties are kind of adhering to, to those rules and regulations, and, again, it all comes down to the lease agreement and what the terms and conditions that have been agreed to, then, I mean, it's all happy days. So, you know, so long as the landlord's responding to the maintenance as it comes up and the tenants are looking after the place and paying their bills, um, you know, it's an absolute dream. 
So as a again as a as a uh, as a tenant, what expectations should I have of the letting agent with regards to um, you know access to them and re- you know requests and stuff? What what should my expectations be? Um, you should expect to be communicated with. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's a big one, uh, and to have your concerns taken seriously. Look, there's a lot of people out there that might be a little bit over the top with what they're requesting. Um, you know, like. I would expect an agent to tell me where the fine line between capital improvement and a genuine maintenance request is and honestly yes. communicate that. Yeah. Um, I'd expect the, the agent to communicate all my concerns with the landlord because that's what their job is, is to be that insulator between the two and, and to handle that communication. You, um, you mentioned before about the, uh, the landlord's responsibility to uh, to continually offer a habitable property. Yep. Um, so what, again, just with regards to their responsibilities, are there with regards to things like smoke detectors, um, wiring, um, you know, appliances and, and, and that sort of stuff? Well, this is a big thing, particularly in the last decade when all the rules surrounding smoke alarms really started to change across all states. And most states are on the same page now. Um, look, it's about to change again in a few more states uh, in the next couple of years surrounding from battery operators to hardwired alarms too, but it's going to, to smoke alarms in general. Uh, it is a landlord's obligation to ensure that they're serviced on an annual basis and they are operational and, and placed in compliance with the, with the local building code as well. Um, things surrounding pool fencing, that was a really big thing that happened a few years ago when the laws changed, particularly in Queensland and New South Wales. I think it was the biggest uptake of this, but having it certified compliant and safe um, to prevent, obviously, drownings and accidents and so forth. Uh, it's a landlord's obligation to make sure that all these things, the property meet the building code um, from two prongs, like A, the safety of the tenants, and that should be first and foremost paramount, but B, from a liability standpoint as well. Yeah. Uh, because if you haven't done these things and there's an insurable event, they, they're not going to cover you and you could be up for millions and millions of dollars in compensation if someone gets kind of seriously injured or, or even killed. So as the letting agent, what's your responsibility to notify the um, the landlord of such issues? Uh, now, for it's example- the landlord's property on this, and I've got to be very firm, it's the landlord's property, uh, and they're placing their trust into somebody, but at the end of the day, it's always going to come back to bite the landlord in the backside if something's not done, something has been overlooked. So the liability of the agent is quite low, um, but that's really where you've got to select a good agent Um if you're employing an agent, you'd be looking for someone who is proactive with seeking these things out. If they're not right, for making sure the documentation is up to date, um, you know, all, all agents that I know of um, will employ, for example, Smoke Alarms, a third party to to database and check out all the properties on their books because, again, it's just that that liability and passing mm. it on to, to another third party. Um, same with pool fences. Like, I wouldn't sign a lease unless I know the pool fence has been inspected and it's safe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Other things, we're not builders. Um, I, I, you know, like, I mean, most people with common sense will be able to pick up on if something's not right. Like, uh, if, if, like, there's a deck that's coming, like, five centimetres away from the wall and it's a little yeah. bit shaky or rotting, um, you'd get that sussed out by a builder pretty quick. Um, but it's just having someone that's going to be proactive with pointing these things out, explaining the risks associated with, you know, not rectifying any safety issues. So what's the tenant's responsibility there as well? Because uh, at the end of the day, they're the ones who are living in the, the, the property. They're the ones who are going to see these issues first. Yep. Um, they've actually got a legislated responsibility to report maintenance as it falls due. 
um, so to report any concerns. Uh, and the liability could be on for them. Like they'll use just a real quick example. And we had a four bedroom uh, unit, uh, like it was a penthouse in Brisbane City under management a few years ago uh, when I was back up there. Uh, and we had uh, three uh, international students, obviously very high wealth, uh, living in this penthouse. Yep. And there was a ducted air conditioning system that was just leaking like no tomorrow and it caused massive, massive water damage. And it was picked up at a routine. And when we asked him how long has it been leaking for, he's like, oh, about six weeks now. He hadn't reported it. Yeah, um, right. So the liability came back onto the tenant because he hadn't reported it in like a like like in a, an time. appropriate time frame. Yeah. Yeah, so you know you hold you hold the tenant responsible if they're not reporting maintenance as it falls due within a reasonable time frame. What about um, inspection reports? I mean, that's a or inspection. Let's start with inspections, and then obviously the reports fly off the back of that. Your yep. responsibility as a letting agent. Um, how do you go about doing them? Getting access to the property? Um, you know, do you video them? Um, you know, what are you looking out for, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, no, good. Uh, good question. Uh, there, there's a few things to take into consideration here. So we'll use a blanket. Like most states, the quarterly inspections okay. So you're allowed to do them every quarter. Uh, other other states and territories, you're only allowed to do two in a 12 month period. Um, so once you know what it is, uh, as an agent, we book them in. It's anywhere between two 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 to three weeks notice for the tenant uh, that we're going to be coming through. Um, as a general rule of thumb, you're allowed to take photos and video of maintenance concerns. Uh, or breachable issues uh, for documentation purposes. General photos aren't technically permitted without the tenant's uh, like express consent, and that's completely okay. They are entitled to a degree of privacy, even though it is your property, so to speak. Yes. Um, so, like an agent is running through and taking general shots, that's not appropriate unless the tenant's yes. Um, what we like to do, because the landlord's allowed to attend the inspections, is we will say to every single tenant that the landlord's going to be invited either in person or via video call, uh, it won't be recorded. It'll just be a you know a phone conversation to run the landlords through the property to show, hey, you know this is exactly what the place looks like at the moment. If there's any con- uh, sorry concerns, they can see it firsthand, so they know, you know, how we're going to react to it and how you know what action we're going to take. Uh, but also on the flip side too, if everything's perfect, they can see how good the tenants actually are. And nine times out of ten, that's it. Uh, but the things that we're really looking for that a the, the terms and conditions of the lease are being upheld in what's reasonable um, condition for the property, uh, but B, preventative maintenance items as well. Like, are there any water leaks? Are the S-bends leaking? Uh, are there any kind of like dodgy electrical faults or something that we need to be aware of? Um, you know, decks are a big one with, you know, rotting planks and that sort of stuff. Things are getting progressively worse. Um, th- those sorts of things that we really need to, to look out for and document. Uh, routine inspections also provide that ability to track deterioration of like services and, and items over time as well. So you'd be able to go back from the six months before and say, yep, nope, that crack's definitely gotten worse or wider and the six months before that and so on and so on. So you can really make your recommendations uh, quite quite clear based on, on the previous reports and how much detail you go into. So we've all had that mate who's um, living in a share house, he's in the inspection, had to stand in the same spot to try and stand over the red wine that they've spilled <laughs> on the carpet. Yeah. What's the um, what's the craziest you thing you've seen whilst doing an inspection? Um, oh, look, I, I, I've seen some uh, X-rated stuff that I probably won't go into for the purpose of your podcast. <laughs> probably uh, not that sort of podcast exactly today. Exactly <laughs> when you're coming, yeah, pe- people know exactly when you're due at the property because you give them a specific time frame and uh, they they organise uh, a little get together. 
Um, I've seen that. Um, other things I've seen, people with benders from the night before still without clothes passed out in the lounge room floor uh, with the inspection notice on the kitchen table open with a maintenance list. Um, <laughs> Oops. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. There's probably a bit uh, more maintenance but, to do around there. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's been nuts, but um, look, I haven't seen anything uh, too, too extreme with regards to the condition of the property. Most of the ones we've seen are pretty good, yeah. uh, but there's, you know, like you always see drug paraphernalia here and there and depending on the suburb and, you know, how close to the uni you are as well. Yep. Um, but uh, from, from a maintenance standpoint, everything's been pretty tame, but you hear of horror stories like there was this um, you know, one that was sent out to all the real estate agents a few years ago that somebody was renting a place uh, on, on a small acreage and they converted the house into a stable for a couple of horses. Um, so you hear some bizarre stories and also hydro setups in units, but not to grow drugs, but to grow vegetables uh, and, you know, having to, to offload tons and tons of soil. Um, that actually happened in Sydney a few years ago. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you do hear some things, but they're usually the gum tree specials where you uh, yeah. whack your up on gum tree and take the first person that comes along. So, well, I mean, that does bring up an interesting question, though, with regards to, again, your responsibility um, when it comes to uh, to drugs. Um, yep. In fact, maybe even go back a step before that and ask, you know, what is the landlord's responsibility with regards to disclosure? Um, and then I'm going to follow that up by asking your um, uh, liability or responsibility with regards to disclosure yeah, um, it's something not to be messed around with. And again, there's going to be slightly different variations of the general set of rules. Um, but if it's a stigmatised property, um, you have a duty of care to disclose that to a prospective tenant, even if they don't ask. You should actually be advertising the fact that it is a stigmatised property and then disclosing that to every single tenant that comes in for an open home. Um, you just don't mess around with that because it's not worth the risk of them finding something out about the place. Place like, you know, has there been a drug lab or has there been a violent crime? Has there been like a violent death? Um, you, you don't want to run the risk of not disclosing it and that really coming back, not only from a PR perspective, but a general liability and paying, you know, compensation to the tenant of having to go through, you know, finding out and then, you know, relocating because, you, you know, they don't want to live there anymore. Yeah. 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 What is the responsibility with regards to that if there is a drug lab set up, for example, in a, you know, yeah. in a very... Obviously, we're taking a you know very extreme a case here, but let's say there's a, a meth lab that has been set up in a house. Whose responsibility, once the tenant's been removed and everything else has been sorted out with regards to cleaning, um, and obviously then you've got a duty of disclosure to future tenants. In some uh, rural areas, uh, like we'll say Western Newcastle, for example, um, I, I know this is a big thing. Some companies uh, that do ice testing have done really, really well out of this. So you have to undergo like a professional forensic clean um for that and that could run into to tens and tens of thousands of dollars and it needs to be tested a few times to to show that there's no remnants or traces left behind and then i do believe and again i need to from state to state to territory territory just double check the the rules but um i, I do believe that the agent or the lesser um, would have the the duty to disclose that to a prospective tenant that it has happened in the past. I mean, you always go through the the fact that um, you know, like everything's been rectified, and here are the reports, and be really forthcoming with that. But um, like, I mean, it's going to financially impact the general value of the property as well, which kind of comes back to that point that tenant selection is so important. Absolutely, and it's so important to have insurance on the property as well. So there, there could be uh, like timeframes 
for which you do have to disclose it. I'm just not 100% aware of what they are for each individual state. Um, you know, so you might take a massive hit in your yield for like a decade. Yeah, yeah. What about um, what about domestic violence? Um, I imagine you'd probably had to unfortunately deal with with that at times as well. Yep. Um, this is a very tough one. And this is, again, something that you can't take like a, a blasé approach to. Um, You've you got to take it very seriously. The process is like it's still a lease agreement. Um, and there's a lot of like little sub legislations or, or little tack ons to, to the general rules that allow, uh, you know, support in case of this. And a lot of them have just recently changed in the last two years, particularly when there's been that really big community push behind it, which I think, honestly, it's a fantastic thing. Mm. Uh, and again, it's, it's something not to mess with. So, first and foremost, the landlord isn't a charity uh, and it is a financial commercial undertaking. Yes. And this is just one of those risks that do come with that. Um, but if it does happen, um, you know, like it's up to us to take on a really supportive role um, to, to outlay the rules, terms and conditions, but it's not up for us to make the decision on terminating the lease, for example, or for taking somebody off the lease. The person would need to go and apply for civil tribunal. But when it comes to these sorts of cases, um, they're very responsive and they're very fair. Um, so it is a risk to the landlord. And this is, again, just one of those added risks of, of being a landlord. Um, you know, you might be without rent. The lease might get immediately terminated. There might be damage to the property. Who's held liable? Then that's, you know, up to a case for the insurers or or for, for the tenants as well uh, and, and the civil tribunal. But it's, it's something not to mess around with. And there's a lot of support there for both the victims and the landlords as well. But again, coming back to that whole point about insurance, that's where it really plays in because you just never know what goes on behind closed doors. Oh, isn't that the truth? And what yeah. about um, like talking about the residential tribunal? Um, you know, obviously it, it's a huge expense and something that as a landlord you don't want to have to go through. Can you maybe just step people through um, the process of, of, of how something would get to a residential tribunal hearing? Um, you know, um, what process you need to go through first? Yeah, there's a mediation process. So first and foremost, there's a dispute, yeah? Mm. Um, then it's up to the, the agency to try to mediate as best as they can. And then most states or territories have like a formal mediation process that try to reach an agreement and then it goes to the actual ACAT hearing itself where it's adjudicated by, you know, some states as JPs, other states as magistrate, uh, other states as just what they call like sitting members. Um and that, that's, that's the end of the line, what they say goes basically. So the mediation is just voluntary um, that you've got to kind of just work through the motions. Um, the whole reason civil tribunal exists is because it is an inexpensive way to resolve issues. Um, they're usually, you know, uh, for claims up to and including, I think, about 15 or 20 grand in most states. Uh, there's different levels and, I mean, different costs of filing depending on how much you are seeking. Uh, but let's just say the average to file for ACAT here in the ACT, it's about $160. So it is really inexpensive, especially if you're after a bond claim of two or three grand. Um, so most common ones that end up in mediation uh, would either be eviction hearings and getting a warrant of possession for the property or bond disputes um, where, you know, where, where will her tenants go? That was like that when I got here. And then landlords going, no, it was a brand new property, even though it wasn't. Um, there's like a lot of people that are very unreasonable on both sides of the transactions there. Um, and that's that's really what it's all about is being reasonable. Do you think um, that a I'll lot hear- of – sorry, just, just sorry yep. to butt in there, but I was just going to ask – do you think that a lot of issues around residential tribunal hearings could be resolved um, if uh, pre-inspections were carried out thoroughly before people started? Yep. So, again, in most states and territories, photos aren't actually deemed to be like a legal component to the report that an agent undertakes, but they're crazy if they don't have comparative photos 
because photos just don't lie. So you do your written report, you be as thorough as you can on that written report, but you just take a ton of photos of the property every square centimetre and that will pretty much reduce your risk. And that's exactly what we do. So at the end of the tenancy, the tenant goes, that you know 10 centimetre hole in the wall and the stairwell was there. We can pull it up with the date stamp photo and go, well, actually, this is the date that you moved in and it wasn't there. Yeah. And it was never kind of reported throughout your, your tenancy agreement. It wasn't... Uh, you know, on your routine inspection report. So you've clearly done it when you moved your fridge down to the stairwell, and we know that. And then they have no choice but to go, well, yeah, actually, you're right. Uh, but on the flip side as well for a landlord, you know, particularly those that move out of their property and think it's absolutely perfect and bring it to the, rent, uh, to the rental market for the first time, you know, there could be stains on the carpets that they've just kind of forgotten about over yeah. time. And then they do the inspection report with the agent. They go, I want those cleaned yeah. and try to blame it on the tenant. But it's clearly their inspection report. You just got to be quite firm with those landlords as well and going, well, actually, no, you're kind of taking the mickey there. It was there when you moved out. It wasn't perfect when you moved out. And it's pretty well documented here. So you're not doing the report necessarily in favour of the landlord, not in favour of the tenant. It just should be a verbatim copy of what you physically see there. So what about um, in the whole thing of you know breakage and damage by a la- by sorry by a tenant? Yep. Um, you know something that's either accidental, um, incidental, um, you know without malice um, or something that's just faulty um, that through time just wears and tears and breaks i mean how do you define and decide you know what's you know what the tenant's liable for and what's just maintenance from a um, from a landlord point of view yeah look i mean wear and tear you would generally and reasonably define as something that just deteriorates through general use or intended use of like the surface or the item um so you know like if you have a property, you're going to scuff the walls here and there. Probably nothing too overboard, I'd say. And it is a bit of a grey area. Um, you've got to be reasonable in both parts. Um, scuffs on walls are probably the biggest things, but most scuffs kind of buff out. Um, you know, like holes in walls, you'd, you'd claim to be damaged, be it accidental or, or malicious. But um, that's kind of thing you throw back to the tenant. Same with stains on the carpet. Um, things like pile wear on carpet or loss of sheen on stone bench tops. Um, we always class that down to fair wear and tear because. Yeah. You know, we've seen time and time again people try to claim those and they just get knocked back by tribunal because it's completely unreasonable. Yeah. Um, if you teach, a lot of people don't know how to maintain a property, be it ten- tenants or landlords, but if you're kind of teaching people how to look after specific services that you don't want to see damaged, you give them a list um, and, and you really hold their hand through through the process of like how to clean air conditioning filters, for example, would be a big one. Um, you know, teaching people how to live in a property, that should mitigate most of those issues come back out. So with a lot of those things, I mean, I, I mean, it just comes back really to to that whole um, dispute resolution and mediation, almost, doesn't it? I mean, you must spend all your time <laughs> talking with people. Ah, oh, that's exactly right. And look, m- most people are very reasonable. You do get a few uh, interesting personalities that come across the books, uh, and and it's usually the people that won't budge are the people that kind of get drawn through the ringer. Um, so if there's compromise on both sides. That's all right. I mean, that, that, that's only, I guess, in grey areas too where the legislation isn't clear-cut. Uh, we, we're always firm believers that legislation exists to really interpret and to apply. Um, and if you're doing that to the letter of the law, like you can't lose. But um, then, then it just comes into, I guess, how reasonable you are so, defining things in the grey area like wear and tear. Um, so what, what grounds would you have for, um, for a basis for, for eviction then? Um, so breach of the tenancy agreement that could come through, you know, like ways of not looking after the property you know, through cleanliness, damage, malicious or, or accidental or otherwise. Um, non-payment of rent would be the most common one. You know, for example, if someone loses their job, 
um, and they can't afford to make the rental payments. Obviously, you never feel good about making somebody homeless and it's very much the last resort and that's exactly what the courts are for. Um, but they, they would be the most common ones. Uh, but other breaches like include, you know, multiple people living there that aren't listed on the lease, illegal sublet agreements, you know, like through Airbnb and so forth. So any any breach that they haven't rectified of the actual agreement itself. Who's the worst tenant you've ever had to deal with? Um, we've had a few that just love to lie. Um, so everything that they say isn't a truth. Yeah. Um, as a general group of people, they're, they're the ones that you just can't work with because you just never know where you stand. Yeah. Uh, but a singular worst tenant, I can't actually think of one that's really, really frustrated me too much. I think we had one guy lying about like plumbing issues to, um, you know, like say, save to, to get a rent decrease or something on the property itself. Um, but it actually turned out it lost his job and, um, you know, kind of defrauded uh, the agency, the owner and, um, and his family itself may end up getting evicted at the end of it because we had sufficient proof to prove it. Right. Um, I'll probably say he was definitely the worst because, you know, like he just lied about all these things. I was going to ask too as a follow-up, um, you know, how did they come about to uh, occupy the property? But clearly they would have lied on the application that um, as they uh, Yeah, as they look, um, so some people go through really, really intricate lengths to lie on their application, you know, like doctoring bank statements, doctoring... Uh, you know, like accountant references or actually asking people to lie for them in writing. Um, and that level of fraud, for whatever reason, when, you know, presented at ACAT for this particular case, um, you know, it was just kind of glossed over and they weren't really interested in that side of things, of the, the lengths that he went to to lie to the owner and to lie to us. How's COVID affected, um, um, you know, your interaction with both tenants and landlords? Uh, <laughs> uh, so you, you get a whole bunch of people that are working from home, so they're kind of there every single day and, and picking up on all those little items that really bug them. Um, that's been probably the hardest thing to adapt to is the, the influx of requests for capital improvements and for maintenance and, and all the things that go with that. So you'll find that a lot of trades Australia-wide are super, super busy as a direct result of that. Um, what about the, the 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 fact then that there's a whole lot of people that are you know operating commercial activities out of their properties that they previously weren't? Um, it's always been allowed to a certain percentage, and that's more a council regulation than it is like a tenancy regulation. Um, like I mean, if you're actually operating a full blown business, then that's a complete different agreement again, and the property isn't zoned for that. So it's not up for me to say, but it would be technically a breach of the agreement because it's not being used for the intended use, uh, but also a breach of council council law and council regulation as well, particularly in strata. Uh, but I think you're allowed up to, to about 14% or something along those lines to operate like a little home office or something like that, and that's completely acceptable, so long as you're not putting like signboards or anything up to, to bring in customers and so forth. So inspections and that sort of stuff, how have they gone? Um, we started off, and again, in Victoria, I think it'd be much harder than it has been here. Like, we've been COVID-free for about 100 days or so. Uh, but in the very first instance of, of the lockdowns, we just went immediately to video inspections, which, look, they're not the best, but it was better than nothing. Yeah. Um, so it was just a case of having to, to let all the landlords know and book it in. If the tenants couldn't make it happen, I think that's – we tried the classes – unreasonably, um, you know, denying access to the property for the purpose of routine inspection. Uh, but every single person we dealt with was very amenable to, to our request and was more than happy to show them through. I actually found from a tidiness perspective, like it was difficult to kind of see the, the maintenance side of things, but from cleanliness and tidiness, uh, the video calls I found the tenants made a lot more of an effort.
Yeah, interesting. Than they do when, when we go in person. Mm, that's interesting, isn't it? Well, I mean, the whole thing's on show and we're going through every square centimetre of the property. <laughs> so it makes sense, yeah. <laughs> so Ashby Partners, how did it start and how did you overcome the little, um, you know, the fear, the little voice in your head when you moved to Canberra without any clients? Um. It was interesting. So, like, I'm from Brizzy. Uh, like, I grew up in rural New South Wales and moved to Brizzy pretty much straight out of high school to, you know, do start at uni and, and all the rest and ended up just getting a job in real estate because, you know, you need to support yourself. Uh, spent 10 years up there and then I've just kind of felt that the only way to really, really move forward is to to go out on my own. Um why Canberra, I still don't know to this day. I have absolutely no idea why it picked Canberra, but uh, here we are. There's a lot of research for the different capital cities. It had a lot to do with lifestyle as well. Yes. Like, I mean, it's the bush capital. There's surrounded by, I love to mountain bike, I love to ski, I love to hike. Uh, and you, you get all of that there. Like, there's so many good camping spots. Like, you've got Kangaroo Valley, just an hour and a half north. You've got the ski slopes of, yeah. you know, like Perisher and Threadbow, one and a half hours south. So, it's just an absolutely gorgeous spot. So, um, that's why we, I, I guess, I picked Canberra over any other capital. And plus, you've got the highest level of income, uh, the highest level of employment, the highest level of education down here as well. So the quality of tenants, you, you kind of figure from face value are going to be much higher. Yes. Yep. Um, yeah, then overcoming, I guess, the little voice in my head saying this is a stupid idea. <laughs> I just honestly really didn't think about it too much. I just, just did it. Even better. And so what sort of services yeah. do you offer them? Uh, just property management and leasing. So I won't do sales. Um, I'm not, not interested in that side of the transaction. Uh, what we do is we're specialists um, at, at that particular niche within the real estate sector, and it's only residential. So I do have a background in commercial. I have a background in sales, uh, be it property, advisory, uh, commercial, retail, industrial, all you can think of. I've done it all, but uh, residential property management, there was a big gap down this specific market for, for good, good quality boutique service. Um, so that's that's exactly you know what we do and what we do really well. And you said that communication is paramount in uh, in your line of work. What sort of um, you know turnaround times can you expect, or, or, or could uh, could a landlord expect you know in dealing with um, a good quality uh, letting agent? Well, with us, it's same day. Um, unless it's something that we need to seek advice on, but we always update people every step of the way. Um, you know, for us, if we answer the phone once, it stops ringing. Um, same with the emails. They stop coming in if you just answer the question. Yeah. Uh, if, if you need more time, you just ask for more time and make sure you diarise it. For a good quality agent, usually if they can respond in 24 hours, I think that's that's good. Anything more than that, I think that's a very good indicator that the property manager is just considerably overworked and, and ill-equipped with the time management to, to be able to service, um, you know, the amount of clients that they're obviously looking after. Or they don't care. But I, I think it's usually more to do with how busy they are. Like my, most property managers I met do care deeply. Um, it, it's just they don't have the resources or the support to be able to do it fi- efficiently and effectively. So it's super important that um, that a property stands out when it's coming to letting time. What yep. does uh, Ashby Partners do? and Or how does a landlord, you know, what can a landlord do to help their uh, property stand out? And, and what can you as Ashby Partners do? Just because a property, like a rental property is a lower tier transaction to sales doesn't mean that you need to forget about marketing. Um, marketing is paramount. Uh, when coming to market, it's all about casting the widest net possible to secure the very best tenant. So you want to get as many people interested in that property as possible to make sure you have that wider selection. 
you don't want to be left with just one option because that's usually where you know heartbreak happens. Yeah. Um, you, you want to make a very well-informed decision. So spending a few hundred dollars on photos, maybe like a sexy video of the place, uh, you know, if it does fall sale, having it in the back pocket, uh, sorry, if it does fall stale, having, having your back pocket uh, that you can upgrade the listing to Premier and and other suburbs on, on the web portals like real estate.com and domain. Um, all those little tools that a, an agency should be able to tell you what the costings are and develop a pretty firm strategy. So for us, we sit down with every single client. Uh, we go through optimistic pricing and realist pricings, uh, and that's something that I love to do yeah. um, because you never know. You've got to test the market to make sure you're getting the most, but you don't want to stay at that price for too long. So if in the first week we're really falling flat and we're not getting the people through, um, we reassess is it the price could be, uh, is it how it's presented and where it's presented it could be. Uh, we run through the analytics, we run through the reports, we run through the engagement, which every single agency will get a weekly report for each individual listing for each um, portal to tell them exactly how it's performing and, and where they sit in that suburb average as well. So, so yep. No, you go. Keep going, sorry. Uh, I was going to say, so um, with all that information there, you'll know exactly what it is. So you'll know what to tweak. You know if it's to tweak the, the advertising material, if you need to really boost it up and be seen by a wider audience, such as like Premier listings on REA, for example, will show on the surrounding suburbs instead of just the one the person searched. Um, or, or you'll know very quickly if it's a price thing as well. And then you just you just need to, to kind of break it off and actually make that price reduction and not really dawdle on that for too long. What's your view on YouTube? Um, well, we use it. Uh, we use uh, like a combination of video and photo. Uh, we're, I like to say, a little bit funny. With what we do. I think they're hilarious. Uh, there's a lot of people out there with the big to differ. No, I think they're hilarious. To it. I actually think everyone. Yeah, I'll so put like a link with COVID, to it. I saw a lot of uh, rental agencies. And again, like I mean, it's, it's about cost effectiveness, and a lot of landlords just don't want to spend the money. Um, so we, as our agency, and it's more for our marketing, but like I've got so many reports showing the increased engagement. An $800 video done professionally, um, you know, we're reaching twenty or 30,000 people in a week. Uh, it's it's absolutely nuts. And the properties that we've done with video, I've just rented immediately. Um, but you, you wouldn't do it for like a one bed in the outer suburbs that go for 250 bucks a week. Uh, but for, for your run-of-the-mill property that you're kind of up against a lot, it's just about standing out. Um, so we do use a combination of all the socials, YouTube, Facebook, Insta, um, and, and we really pay the boost to get it out there. Uh, but that's something that we absorb as the agencies, all that pay boost, because, again, it's more branding. Um, but if your agency didn't offer that, that's completely okay. You have that option to pay for it as well, like 50 bucks for a week on Facebook uh, as a sponsored boost. Um, you know, we, we see an average uh, of viewership at around about eight or 9,000 people. So with that, how do you um – Actually, first of all, I've got to say, I've got to congratulate you on the, on the ads. They the the YouTube out there, they are sensational. I'll put a link. <laughs> Thank you. I'll put a link in the uh, in the show notes because uh, uh, we're about to go live with the most recent one today. Actually, oh, I'm excited about that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, definitely worth a view. Someone's got a. Uh, are they driven by you? Are they your ideas? Because so, someone's got uh, a very they, quirky uh, look, sense of humour. As much as I hate to admit it, they're very much my ideas. I, I write direct. Um, but uh, we, we get a really good bloke, Cam from Raw Pro, into filming what for us, and he's really, really good at putting them together. He like, sees the vision, and he sees how, how silly we can be. It looks like you have a lot of fun doing them. Oh, we can't wipe the smiles off her face, which make us quite wooden in our acting approach, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when you say that you use uh, Facebook, Insta, and those sort of things, and um, with the, the, the post boosts, et cetera, how do you go about defining um, you know, who you're going to actually boost those um, – uh, those ads too. 
Uh, we have, uh, and again, this is probably more from a business perspective, uh, but we have two different categories that we run simultaneous boosts on. Uh, so one for tenants, um, so people with an interest in, in rental properties at any given time, um, and certain economic statuses and, and employment as well. Um, so it's not a matter of necessarily targeting someone who is looking, um, but people in specific industry where they would be exposed to helping a lot of their, their peers and colleagues out. So here it's easy because, what, 33% of Canberra is public service. Um, so it's easy to really narrow that down and advertise to them. They're, they're all very close-knit and, you know, chat amongst themselves. Um, but we also have uh, the, the other booths that we run simultaneously is, like, kind of directed directly at landlords so they can see how we're advertising properties to tenants yes. and you know from their mind they're like well i like to look at these guys i hope my property looks like that yeah so we run both those booths um so from a tenancy perspective you do get a couple of leads and it only takes one person to rent a property um but we see a lot more success on those from getting a new business as well that's fantastic yeah congratulate you and what else can a um can a can a landlord do to help you know, their property stand out. I mean, obviously, when you've bought a property, you can't change the locational position and outlook and, and all the rest of it. But there must be things that uh, a landlord can do to help their uh, their property pop and become, um, you know, more desirable. Yeah, if, if possible, have a look at it. Um, I'll give one example of cleaning. Uh, so I've just taken over a two-bedroom unit in Canberra City, and I use the term city pretty loosely. <laughs> uh, but I've just taken over a two-bedroom unit in Canberra City where an agency has had it vacant for nine weeks, which is unheard of because the vacancy rate in Canberra is about 0.8 of a percent, so very, very tight market. Yes. Went in there. It was absolutely filthy. Um, they did a very poor vacate. Um, they've been showing loads of prospective tenants through, but every single prospective tenant has been like, this place is filthy. I don't want to live here. Yeah. Uh, I walk in, communicate this exactly to the owner. I get approval to spend 500 bucks on like a full deep bond claim. He's obviously going through with the liability thing with the last agency, but I'm, I'm staying out of that one. Yes. Uh, but it's, it's, it's rented within three days. So making sure that the property is well put together and someone actually wants to live there. Um, from making a property pop from an advertising perspective, um, you know, it's just making those little improvements, making sure that, you know, like the carpets aren't visibly stained in the photos and that sort of stuff. Like, that, you know, there aren't holes in the walls being advertised because people don't want to live in a place like that. People want to live in a nice place. You're going to attract a good tenant for a good property. At the end of the day, landlords are in the accommodation business, aren't they? Yep. And, I mean, you've, you've got to give a good product to get, to, to, to get a good tenant. So what's the biggest challenge that you face as a rental manager? Um, setting realistic expectations firmly. So sometimes people on both ends of the transaction just have their heads in the clouds. They don't want to be reasonable. Yeah. You know, landlords not wanting to be reasonable with things they actually have to do like according to legislation or making outlandish requests for, you know, terms that go completely against what the law says, yeah. uh, which, which does happen. Uh, but on the flip side, tenants, we, we had one tenant um, that we took over from another agency that stopped paying rent. He was in the public service because he was saving money for a deposit for a house. So where that makes sense, I'm not 100% sure, but his theory was he'll stop paying rent. Um, nothing bad's going to happen because he'll never have to rent again. Yeah, okay. <laughs> not quite the case. He, he went to, yeah, he, like, interesting, yeah, take, take on the whole situation. But, um, I mean, through debt collection processes, we're able to get every single cent back. Uh, but I just thought that was just bizarre kind of attitude. So setting and, and, and getting people to meet those reasonable expectations would be the hardest thing as a rental manager to do. What about for a landlord? What's their biggest challenge that you think that they face? Um, parting with money uh, would be the big one. Uh, it's easier if it's been your family home and you've moved out and upsized. 
that's not necessarily the best investment, but like it's still something that you're commercially doing. But parting with money to make essential repairs or upgrades to the property, that would be the biggest challenge that I see every single landlord across, you know, everyone that I've represented make. It's an interesting one, isn't it? That, um, you know, I guess that's, there's the allure of, of property that you can, you know, you can leverage into it and, and the idea that, um, you know, people want to leverage up as high as they can to, uh, to create the greatest, you know, capital gain, as you said earlier, the money's in the capital gain, you know, you're comparing simple interest with compound interest. So, you know, the, the, the income you're receiving being simple interest and the capital gain being, um, compound interest. But at the end of the day, um, you know, you do need to make sure that you've got some fat in your cash flow and that you've got some reserve funds because, you know, as you said, we are in an accommodation business and we need to make sure that uh, people want to live uh, in the property that we've got. Exactly. And like if the property's vacant, it does you absolutely no favours unless you've got that cash flow to, to really service your debts. Um, but on the flip side too, like, I mean, if you end up in breach of your tenancy because you're not doing the required works, that's nothing but a headache as well. Like you don't want to be taken to civil tribunal. Yeah. You don't want the tenant to be able to just like cease the lease agreement on the spot because you're not upholding your end of the bargain. How do landlords go from one property to two properties to three, five, seven, et cetera? I mean, you see those, you know, most most investors, you know, um, most investors get stuck at one, very few people get to two, and the uh, the numbers of people who get to four and more is very low. How, how do people break through those ceilings? It's just leveraging the equity you've got in the property. So with that capital growth, um, I mean, if you experience higher capital growth, the bank's more likely to lend you more money. Uh, and it's, it's just, I guess... Um, you know, having that confidence to to just make that leap and make that decision. Like a lot of people don't. Um, you know, there's plenty of developers out there that are, you know, screaming to to you know match your home deposits and things like that. Um, you just have to put up your your house security basically, and away you go. Um, so it's having the confidence to to actually make that jump to the second property, and then you know you got two properties to leverage off. So mm. if you're paying down your debts. Uh, and, you know, you're experiencing capital growth. That's obviously where you see the success and the growth of the property portfolio. So what's the best piece of advice you can give a, um, a landlord? That's a very good question. I haven't actually thought about that. Um, the be- best piece of advice um, I could give a landlord is uh, have pride in the product that you're offering. Yeah, that's actually a really good one. That is, that's a, Actually, that is a really good one because – a lot of people, they they often people who often um, get involved in um, in as a landlord, they see it as a as a B grade option, don't they? Their, their investment property, they just see the capital growth. They don't want to spend any money on it. They often buy you know B grade properties, etc. Um, they don't give it the love and the attention, um, and consequently, that's the sort of um, tenant that it appeals to. Um, and when you give yeah, it a bit of love and attention, have the most complaints because it does it like it deteriorates a lot quicker. Correct. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying yeah, they go and paint it between every tenancy or anything like that. It's just, you know, even if you do the bare minimum, you're, you're up, you know, 80% of, of, you know, what you're up against. Yeah. You're in the top 20 percentile if you do the bare minimum. So having a little bit of pride. Look, don't get me wrong. There are some, I guess, scenarios where, you know, buying very much a B or a C grade property is the better option, for example, like for future use. Uh, for here in Canberra, if you're buying an RZ2 property, chances are it was built in the 1970s. Uh, but there's there's different land use 
when you go to sell. So you're going to experience slightly higher capital growth, especially in places where, you know, the zoning hasn't been changed, but it's more than likely to. And it's, don't get me wrong, speculation, um, but like there's probably the type of property you're not going to pump a lot of money into because it's just going to be ripped down in a couple of years once you experience that growth. It's still not too difficult to keep it clean though, is it? Exactly. Keep it clean, keep it maintained and away you go. Mm. So let's finish up... um uh, with, um, uh, I, I mean, I know I asked what's the best piece of advice you could give to a landlord, but I wanted to finish with, you know, if you can give us maybe five or six tips for both landlords and um, tenants, you know, if they're, uh, you know, what's the best thing, you know, from a from what you've yep. seen in your experience, uh, if you can throw us, you know, four or five tips. Um, all right, I'd say engage a good property manager. A property manager is worth their weight in gold, as you've heard. So if I would the absolutely manager, agree with that. Couldn't agree yeah, with so more. If the property manager is engaged, it's going to reduce a lot of headaches, um, particularly around tenant selection and, and you know, I guess, ongoing maintenance with the property as well. Um, keep the property in a good condition. Understand your taxation benefits would be a really big one. So particularly if you've got a first home buyer that's, you know, bought their first place, it's brand new, lived in it for 12 months and moved out and they haven't even considered the depreciation schedule. So understanding your taxation benefits and talking to your accountant is extremely important to make sure you're getting the very best out of it because, again, the, the money to be made in property men, uh, in, in property investment on an ongoing basis outside of capital growth, it's, it's very slim margins for you. So getting the best out of that is extremely important. Um, ensuring the property is safe and compliant is paramount. Uh, and ensuring that you have adequate insurance coverage uh, for the property. And then lastly, the biggest tip of all is have realistic expectations. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, – and, and, you know, that comes back to that communication thing, doesn't it, to be, uh, you know, communicating with experts to, um, you know, to help understand exactly where you sit in the marketplace. Exactly. What about for um, – uh, for those of us who need to rent for whatever reason, what do we need to do to get our house in order? Um, for, for for a tenant having the house in order, um, I, I'd say uh, keep on top of your cleaning first and foremost yep. uh, because at the end of the day, you, you don't want to have things deteriorate through misuse because you will be held liable and it's just something that you want to avoid. Um, keep records. So just because an agent does an ingoing condition report doesn't mean that you shouldn't take your own photos. And I fully endorse that because there's a lot of lazy agents out there that just, you know, it's, it's probably not malicious towards the tenant, uh, but just being lazy and keeping poor records, it's easy to take advantage of the tenant. So keep your own records as well and keep a paper trail of absolutely everything uh, and be realistic and, and reasonable with your requests. Brayden, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Uh, not at this stage. I Again, on the spot, Um I think that if you're engaged with your property, you hire a good person on the ground to look after it. I think that your property investment journey is going to be smooth sailing. So um, where can we get in contact with you if we uh, if we want to speak a bit further, get a bit more advice or uh, have a look at those wonderful YouTube ads? Yep. Punch on to Google, uh, Ashby Partners Real Estate in Canberra. Um, YouTube at Ashby Partners and Facebook at Ashby Partners, Instagram at Ashby Partners. You can see our finest, finest acting work on all those channels. I'm very excited to uh, to endorse that, I have to say. You've done a wonderful job there and uh, I hope that there's a number of other agents that um, pick up on what you've had a crack at there. Oh, excellent. No, thank you. Thank you for having me on today, Jeremy. Really appreciate it. 
Yeah, look, and we'll put all the uh, put your details in in the show notes. I do thank you very much for joining me today. Um, of course, if you want to get in contact with us, um, pafo.com.au. That, of course, is the acronym for Property Australia's Favourite Obsession. Um, don't forget to like, subscribe, or leave us a rating or review. And uh, we will speak to you next time. I thank you again for your time. And, of course, until next time, let's keep obsessing about property. You've been listening to Property, Australia's Favourite Obsession. Any opinions, views, or recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the individual and should be considered general in nature as they do not consider your personal objectives or financial circumstances. You should therefore consider these matters yourself before deciding whether the advice is appropriate to you and if you should act upon it. Should advice be sought, please seek an appropriately qualified advisor. Investing may not be appropriate for everyone as there is inherent risk and the possibility of loss when investing in financial assets, just as there is the possibility of profits. Count and Flack may have a commercial relationship with some guests appearing on this podcast. Your host, Jeremy Cowan and Count and Flack Proprietary Limited are authorised representatives of PGW Financial Services Proprietary Limited, AFSL 384713.